our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, we'd like to start by acknowledging that we're broadcasting today from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And good morning to our wonderful listeners. Welcome to the program. Um, my name's Jacob, and it's uh, great to be back in the Wednesday breakfast chair. Haven't been here for a couple of months, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Claudia and Judith. <laughs> Welcome. How are we this morning? We're good. We're pleased to be here. Lovely to have you back with us, Jacob. It's been a while since yeah. I've uh, sat across the studio glass. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and I, I'm well too. I did stay up late given that I, you know, we have an early start because mm. I want to see the blood moon last night. Oh, did you see it? I did, but it, was, it wasn't easy. I think it was a long distance away, but I saw it. So there oh, you go. Yeah, so what time is that? I think it was about, about, I went out about eight and couldn't find it and couldn't find just the bats, you know, because I <laughs> lived near the Terrapin Parklands. And then all of a sudden I saw this little kind of glow that didn't quite look like a moon because it was before it was actually um, eclipsed fully. So there's this little bit of white. I thought, is that it? And then all of a sudden <laughs> it, uh, you know, got covered and it became a pinky red. But very far away, yeah. Anyway, so, I, yeah, it was a late night for me, <laughs> given our early start. Notice the glow, sort of, that was around, the sort of orangey glow. Well, apparently it went till 11. That's what the reports were saying, but I couldn't stay up quite that late. We were all in bed by then. Yeah, we, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think one, for one person might not have been. <laughs> Jacob. What were, you, what were you doing at 11 p.m.? Or, or dare you not tell? <laughs> I um I actually went to Yochi last night as a little late night um snacks. If you haven't heard of it, it's like a frozen yogurt yes. um, train. And my friend and I had a pact that we weren't going to get Yochi because we were getting it far too often. And we said, okay, we have to wait until one month from now until we get Yochi. So the, the date was October 22nd. Um, and so we were just constantly saying, should we get Yochi? No, October 22nd is when we're going to get it. And then they actually went off to Sydney last week, so we, we didn't even get to have it on October 22nd. Um, but thankfully, we called up last night. Oh, <laughs> nice yeah. yeah. No, it's beautiful. And even this morning was so... Nice and warm, mm, wasn't it? Yeah. And so bright coming Feels in. It just yeah, makes you smile. It's just spirits. Like yeah, yeah. The weather. Mm. If it wasn't so rainy, I would say it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've got a, a wonderful show lined up today, and I know Claudia has been quite busy preparing. What have you got in store for us? Well, first up uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the Australian War Memorial and the absence of recognition for the frontier wars. So we have David Stevens from Heritage Guardians, which is a small campaign group, talking about the work they've been doing to uh, 
get recognition for the frontier wars uh, and they've also been lobbying the Australian War Memorial for more information about what their intentions are there. So, yeah, really looking forward to having a chat with David Stevens. Yeah, and, and after that, I'll be speaking to Richard Kingsford, and I'm sure you've um, seen those photos of the Lake Air Basin when it's all in flood and all the, lo- mm. and the birds and creatures and fish come back. Well, did you know also there are mines up there? There's mining, there's fracking, and we don't see those pictures when we see the pictures in flood. So I'm speaking with um, Richard Kingsford. He's a river ecologist and conservation biologist, and they've just done a study, he and his colleague, uh, and done aerial surveys of the area to show just how many uh, gas and oil projects are up in that uh, Lake Air Base. And so he, we'll be speaking with him at 7.30 and lots of uh, really useful information. Wow, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Mm, yeah, really important to uh, share that full picture. I was watching Four Corners the other week about the military bases up in Northern Territory and it completely spoiled yes. my lovely imagery of Darwin and so forth. Well, they're, they're both there and it's important to remember the beauty and also to challenge the things we're not so pleased about. Mm. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, the uh, double-edged sword, uh, 7.50am I'll be talking with the Plastics Campaign Manager at the Australian Marine Conservation Society about whales and plastics uh, and the latest move by the International Whaling Commission to prevent plastic pollution in oceans. So that'll be a good chat. There's you know, a bit of positive news in the sense that they are uh, planning a global um, treaty to reduce plastic Ooh, pollution. Exciting. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's great. Lovely positive news. <laughs> <laughs> Loving the yeah, environmental theme. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And then at um, around 8 o'clock more or less. Um, I'll be speaking with um, or playing an, a conversation I had with Mon Shafter from ABC Queer. Um, so they are the content lead for that branch of the public broadcaster and host of a podcast called Innies and Outies, um, which is telling the stories of Australians who come out um, and some who stay in. So that was a really great conversation about how the media can better serve um, our queer and trans communities. So, yeah, that one will be playing around 10 past 8. Sounds really interesting. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah, Yeah, and very timely too, given the International Transgender Week. Mm, Coming up. So we're going to jump to a quick song now. This one's called Stranger by Spinifex.
Welcome back. 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Judith and Claudia. Thanks, Jacob. Well, this Friday is Remembrance Day, a day when many Australians will pause to observe a minute's silence in remembrance of those who died or suffered for Australia's cause in war and armed conflict. But which wars and whose suffering are remembered is a subject of ongoing conflict and confusion. Rachel Perkins' documentary series, The Australian Wars, has brought the story of Aboriginal resistance to British frontier violence to our television screens. But at the Australian War Memorial, the nation's largest public memorial for the war dead, you have to look extremely hard to find any evidence of these conflicts and the thousands of Aboriginals lost in resistance. As the memorial engages in an extensive building program costing taxpayers over half a billion dollars, campaign groups are calling for proper recognition of the Australian frontier wars at the memorial. The Heritage Guardians is one group lobbying for recognition. The group's convener, David Stevens, is a doctor of political science, former Australian public servant and government relations consultant and editor of the Honest History website. He joins us now to talk about the campaign. Welcome, David. Morning, Claudia. Lovely to have you on breakfast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, Heritage Guardians is a small activist group, yet you have taken on some mighty challenges. Can you tell us about the group's purpose and what brought its members together? The Honest History website has been running for a while, and after a while, you start to focus on particular issues, which have a general link to history. And the Heritage Guardians group started up when we heard rumours that the memorial was going to be given essentially $500 million um, to build an extension. And we thought, well, an extension to do what? And it soon became clear that it was an extension to do pretty much the same things that the memorial had been doing since 1940. Um, and first of all, we said, well, look, let's let's not do it. Let's spend the money um, to $500 million on better causes, like on um, direct benefits to veterans and their families. Uh, issues of veteran suicide were quite prominent. Or spread it more evenly across, um, across uh, other cultural institutions in Canberra, uh, national cultural institutions, many of which are... Uh, short of money. The memorial ha- hasn't been short of money. Um, uh, along the way, the memorial went through a number of um, approval processes, Public Works Committee, um, the Minister for the Environment, uh, National Capital Authority, which looks after planning things in Canberra. Um, all of them were laid down as heirs, really. Um, they were uh, essentially going through the motions because the Prime Minister, Morrison, in November 2018, had said, um, here's the $498.7 million, it turned out to be. Um, congratulations to Kerry, Kerry Stokes, and Brendan Nelson, who were the chairman and the director of the memorial, for their effective lobbying, um, uh, and the government's all in favour of it. So once that was done, it was there really was no way of, of stopping it, um, although we did our best. Um, they dug a hole, they started digging a hole, at the weekend um, in about July 2021, which was to uh, demolish um, Anzac Hall, which was a huge um, component of the building at the back, uh, back of the memorial, um, on the grounds that it needed to be got out of the way before so they could put the, the new um, 
extensions in. So there were all sorts of chicanery about um, uh, the process. But we felt once it was once it was clear that the the new building was going, the new extensions were going to happen. Two point five. Uh, hectares of new extensions, uh, quite a large football grounds worth of new extensions. We should try and work on what should go into them. And a lot of the memorials uh, arguments were essentially about finding space to put um, retired military kit in. Uh, two, two F-111s, helicopters, bushmasters like the ones that are in the Ukraine, uh, other things. Have them in lots of wide open space that people, so people could come and look at them and admire them. And we said, well, Let's take up some of that space and turn it into a Frontier Wars gallery. Um, and gradually, uh, particularly kicked along by, as you said, Rachel Perkins' documentary uh, series in the last little while, the memorial came round to saying, yes, we will. But the, it, there has been a lot of ambiguity and confusion and clearly um, conflict within the War Memorial's Governing Council about what, how much that will be and what it will in- involve and what it will cover, and I might stop at that point, and we can perhaps talk about what it should cover to do it to do uh, recognition of the frontier wars properly. But that's essentially how we got to where we are now. Fantastic! Uh, thanks for uh, laying out that background. Um, well, perhaps before we jump to what we would like to see, can you tell us how the frontier wars are currently represented at the Australian War Memorial, and how that compares with the way other military conflicts involving Australians are represented? One or two things came out in the in the sort of off the cuff remarks that Brendan Nelson made um, six weeks ago when he announced this. Brendan Nelson, now chair of the memorial, but leaving shortly. Um, they reckon they've got 63 artworks. Well, there are two um, reasonably big artworks which I think are currently on display. They're artworks to do with the frontier wars. One of them. Um, a Rover Thomas painting from the Kimberley depicting uh, a massacre of Indigenous people in the Kimberley in, I think, 1928, um, is, was actually the most expensive um, uh, indigenous piece of Indigenous artwork at the time the memorial bought it. Um, so they, they haven't been shy of, of um, splashing on artworks. Um, the difficulty is they have been... Um, spread around in, in odd places, mostly in the, the warehouse, and very few of them actually on display. When they've had displays, they've been fairly amb- ambivalent about what they're about. They're very, they, they do remember, um, or they like people to remember, a thing that they had called Four Country, Four Nation, which was about Indigenous um, service uh, in the King's and Queen's uniform, but it also recognised that there had been Indigenous warriors going back um, and fighting against um, settlers. But when, when you looked at the, the, the words on that display, it was very, very sort of unclear about what they were actually getting at. So they were sort of admitting that things had happened, but not really um, getting into the details of why these um, First Nations people were, were resisting um, uh, the settlers and resisting the, the native police. It was a sort of um, we used to call it a left-handed way of way of um, of um, recognising indigenous um, conflict, um, and one of the ways this came out was has seen has been seen recently by, in statements by um, the, the director Matthew Anderson, and also the chairman 
Brendan Nelson, they've said that when people said, look, you've had bits and pieces of Frontier Wars um, um, depiction in the place until now, um, why have you done that? And they said, well, we needed to show the context for Indigenous service in the kings and queens uniform. We needed to show that people who, Indigenous people who took up the, uh, the, the, decided to fight for the king or the queen, um, in the Boer War and First and Second War and Vietnam and so on, were building on a tradition of fighting, um, before that. So they only recognised, they almost were saying, we'll only recognise, um, Indigenous fighters to the extent that they were role models for people who fought in the king's uniform. Now, that's a kind of, as I said, left-handed way of recognising it. It doesn't really look at the reasons why and the strength of uh, the feelings that made Indigenous people um, uh, fight for their country. And we, we, I'm just finishing on that note, the memorial makes a great point of we, we, we want to commemorate people who fought in the king's or queen's uniform, including Indigenous people, um, fighting to defend their country and to, to defend their values. And we say, what is the difference between, between people fighting in the king's and queen's uniform, defending Australia, and you could argue that some of those defenders, some of those, in some of those cases, like going off to fight in Iraq, the connection to defence of Australia is pretty, pretty slim. What's the, anyway, accepting that, what is the difference between those people defending Australia as it is now and Aranta and Noongar and Wiradjuri and Wurundjeri people defending their country, on their country, um, against uh, native police and against um, armed settlers? It, it's still the same urge to defend your piece of ground. And I think you can argue, as I said, it's a stronger urge in the case of some of those battles that were fought um, back in the 18th and 19th and 20th, 20th century than it is in some of our more recent uh, um, expeditionary forces going overseas. So defending country is a, is a theme that the memorial needs to grasp and understand that it applies just as much to, um, probably more so, to Indigenous fighters as it does to those who fought in the King's uniform. And what did uh, Dr. Brendan Nelson say on the 29th of September when he made his public statement suggesting that the yeah. memorial might do more to acknowledge the frontier yeah. wars? He said, he said it was a sort of off-the-cuff thing right at the end. that We, we had a couple of journalists who were worded up to ask him questions. The, the, the occasion was ostensibly about announcing that they had a new heating system um, planned to for the memorial, um, and the, the journalists got under his skin a bit, and it was a bit off the cuff, but he said the, the memorial, Memorials Council has decided that we will give a, a, a far wider, far deeper depiction, depiction, a presentation and depiction of the of frontier conflict they don't, or frontier violence. They don't like calling it frontier wars, but they admit in some of their paperwork that now that, it, that they were wars, a, a much wider depiction presentation and depiction of frontier conflict. Now, it's been disputed about... What, we tried to get through through um, FOI 
the actual decision. Of course, they didn't give it to us. Um, they gave us um, the background or the agenda paper, largely redacted. Since then, um, other people on the council, particularly uh, retired Major General Greg Millick, who's also head of national head of the RSL, has come back and said, "Well, look, look what Brendan said was it was all it was all uh, it wasn't quite what the journalists think he said, and um, it's all part of uh, existing galleries and." Um, and then Nelson Nelson was contacted. He was over in New York in his job for Boeing. He said, well, it's, and he started using the word modest, modest. It's going to be a modest presentation. And that seems to be the way they're being pushed. There was a lot of pressure in the last few days from Barnaby Joyce, Andrew Bolt, and at estimates yesterday from Senator Matt Canavan trying to wind back. Um, and I think the memorial's starting to cave in and starting to become uh, less sure of what it wants. It's quite clear that it sees what's going to be done with the Frontier Wars as simply part of what they call the pre-1914 galleries, which is where they also look at the contingent that went to the Maori Wars in uh, New Zealand, the contingent that went to China, um, the Boer War contingent, the, the, the people who went from New South Wales to the Sudan in 1885, plus the, plus the Frontier Wars. And that's basically how they had it before. Um, they had a thing called the Colonial Conflicts Gallery, um, and um, Director Anderson made a point of saying, and yes, that had a, had a recognition of um, frontier wars. There was a presentation on the, um, the Slaughterhouse Creek massacre in, I think, 1838. Well, I remember that vividly. It was about, it was the size of a, it was the size of a, a large TV set. Um, so it was, you could walk past it in, in a split second. It was tiny. Now, if, if all they're thinking of doing is doing something larger than that in a slightly larger space, but beside the Sudan and the Maori Wars and the Boer War, that would be an insult. They might as well not do it. Um, they also need to, beyond getting, they need to, they need to do a larger, um, space, call it the Frontier Wars Gallery, and then the key thing, beyond depiction and presentation, they also need to think about commemoration because they claim that the War Memorial is three things, a memorial, a museum, and an archive. Now, memorials are about commemorating dead people. Now, if you're going to treat the frontier wars properly, you've got to think about how you commemorate them. Do you put a panel on the, on the uh, Roll of Honour um, next to the 102,000 people who died wearing the King's and Queen's uniform? And you probably can't put names up because we don't know who they were, which is a part of the problem. But you've got to think commemoration as well as wider depiction and presentation, and that's where there's going to be a stoush if the memorial sticks to its guns, and we're trying to encourage them to stick to their guns and look really at, at commemoration. Um, and there'll be a stoush on that, between, on that side, and on the other side, the Barnaby Joyce's and the Andrew Bolts who say, don't dare change anything. This is a sacred institution. We're talking about um, conservative figures of at least 20,000 Aboriginal lives that were lost yeah. in those uh, frontier wars. So we are not talking about um, anything insignificant at all. Uh, I'm very concerned about what this really means for the nation. You know, we're heading into a referendum next year yeah. uh, about... You know, enshrining the voice of First Nations people, which at its heart is about uh, truth-telling and bringing um, 
their rightful place in decision making. It seems very at odds with that project to be holding back in this way at yeah. the most uh, prominent public memorial for uh, our our Australian wars. Yeah, it, it's it, it's on that quickly on that figure of twenty thousand. It is conservative. I mean, you can make a reasonable case that it's something like sixty and sixty to seventy thousand, particularly in Queensland, where the native police were. Uh, clearly a military force, despite being called police, and were very efficient at killing people, going back to the 1840s. Um, some people have said even more than that. But the, the point, the point of all of all of that is that we need to um, focus properly on on, um, as you say, on commemorating the people who who have died. Um, they they clearly haven't quite yet grasped the extent to which there's concern about this. They don't see the connection between voice and Makarata and treaty. Um, it, it's clearly part of truth-telling. We would argue that, as, as Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, who we've had a bit of contact with, um, said it's possible to walk and chew gum at the same time. And <clears throat> we we're trying to encourage people... Excuse me, to see the work that's needed to get the frontier wars properly commemorated, uh, depicted and commemorated at the memorial as something that can happen alongside voice. Now, we're trying to get Indigenous um, people to be in- involved in that, in that, um, that push. Um, it's particularly a risk if, if the voice, because of the conservative opposition, if the voice gets stymied and the difficulty of the referendum process um, makes it easy to stymie. We need other things running as well. Um, uh, Linda Thorpe, Senator from Victoria, has has said, you know, do it in a different order. I don't think the order's the issue. I think the issue is to try and keep as many irons in the fire as possible um, with all of this. Um, the education of children, for example, is an important part of mm. it. Um, into 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 um, making sure that that's happening. We've almost tr- we've tried to see um, in, in education of Indigenous children. We've tried to get people to an extent to see this also as part of closing the gap. Now, some of the closing the gap um, metrics aren't going particularly well, but it, it, this could be seen as closing the commemorative gap. We we have tried to convince people that you can't just um, use this fig leaf of um, indigenous service um, for the, the in the King of the Queen's uniform, as as Paul Daly, the journalist, says, as a sort of fig leaf, a fig leaf for the lack of recognition of of the broader um, issue of. Uh, First Nations people fighting to defend their own country. You've got to get beyond that um, and look at it as a as trying to fill the, the commemorative gap between what we do at the moment for in, uh, commemorating Indigenous deaths fighting for their country and what we need to do, which which is from one option, getting it into um, the Australian War Memorial. Other people say, don't do it in the memorial, do it somewhere else. We would argue, a lot of us would argue. You can do it in more than one place. Um, Absolutely. Pe- people who have fought 
to the king or the queen, you can you need to go to get a proper story about them. You go to the memorial, but if you want the want the records, you go to the national archives, and you can also see things in the national museum, the national library, and there are also war cemeteries. Um, there's no reason why the Australian frontier wars should not be commemorated, <laughs> depicted and commemorated in the memorial, and also in a national keeping place, the Nagara concept, which is gradually coming on stream. It's it's possible to to do not just to do walk and chew gum at the same time, but to look at a, a, a an important part of our history, a foundational part of our history, as Rachel Perkins said, commemorated, um, dealt with in a number of national institutions. Absolutely. Well, we're pretty much out of time. I would have liked to have asked you about the decision-making powers at the War Memorial uh, yep. and the absence of an Indigenous representative there as well as yep. some of the, the broader um, issues floating around about influence and yep. weapons companies and fun- funding, but we don't have time for that, unfortunately. We might have to have you back for that conversation. Uh, just Quick, to f- quickly on the decision-making, it's essentially old, white blokes with a few women, all with military connections, and no, and and but certainly coalition conservative connections, but certainly no indigenous person and no historian since two thousand two thousand and four. Mm, disgrace. Now, how can listeners find out more about Heritage Guardians' work and get involved in the campaign? Yeah, it, the best thing to do is to um, go on, is to look at the website, which is Honest History One Word. .net.au, honesthistory.net.au. And on the front there you'll see a Heritage Guardians campaign diary in the middle, which is the best way of getting into it uh, as a start. And, and if, you, if you want to get involved in what we're trying to do, um, just send us an email, which is admin at honesthistory.net.au. Brilliant. I think there's a contact panel there somewhere too, but that's the, in my email address. But we'd love to hear from people, particularly Indigenous people, um, uh, we would, um, Mom and Yeko, we would welcome them to the, to the, to the, the fray. Uh, it'll take a long time to do, um, no guarantee of success, strong opposition, but we need to do something. Thank you very much. Thanks, Claudia. And that was Dr. David Stevens, convener of the Heritage Guardians Group, talking about the campaign for recognition of the frontier wars at the Australian War Memorial. And as he said, you can find out more about their work at honesthistory.net.au. And I'll just point out uh, that The Australian Wars, Rachel Perkins' documentary series, is available to view on SBS On Demand. And there's also a Frontier War Stories podcast by Bo Spearham that uh, you can listen to as well if you're wanting more information. Thanks, Claudia. Great interview. Yes, it was so interesting to get to the background and uh, and, and the politics behind it. But I can't believe they're, they're being influenced by Barnaby Joyce and Andrew Bolt. I mean, haven't we had a change of government? Haven't mm-hmm. we? You know, aren't we in a different place right now? Well, history is written by the winners, as they say. Mm. (laughs) Well, we're going to jump to a couple of community service announcements, and we'll be right back after this. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. 
Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Nam Melbourne Slut Walk is once again taking to the streets in the fight against victim blaming and slut shame. In the past year, we have seen how deeply still rape culture is ingrained in our highest institutions, from the media to federal government. This cannot be tolerated. To take a stand, join the 2022 Slut Walk at 1pm on the 19th of November outside the Victorian State Library. Slut Walk is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back, 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Claudia and Judith. And it's great to have your company with us this morning. And uh, next I'm going to be speaking with uh, Professor Richard Kingsford. And he's a river ecologist and conservation biologist. And he's worked across wetlands and rivers of the Murray-Darling Basin and the Lake Eyre Basin. And he's recently published a paper in the journal Marine and Freshwater Research entitled Oil and Gas Exploration and Development in the Lake Eyre Basin, Distribution and Consequences for Rivers and Wetlands, including the Kungi Lakes Ramsar site. So I spoke with Richard on Monday, and he had just come back uh, at the end of the last week from a aerial, doing aerial surveys of the area, and I tried not to be too envious <laughs> because it just seems like such a beautiful place to spend time. So I began by asking him just to describe the Lake Air Basin, especially so many people haven't been there. It's an amazing area that's about a sixth of Australia and it's almost heart-shaped. So if you think about an area that's in the middle of Australia across the Northern Territory, Queensland and a little bit of New South Wales and a lot of South Australia, that's the Lake Air Basin. And it really is the catchment which includes the big rivers that are known as the Channel Country Rivers, the Georgina, Diamantina uh, and Cooper Creek, taking water from the Queensland western part of the Great Dividing Range north of the Murray-Darling. It's a massive area with these incredible free-flowing rivers that run basically north to south to Lake Eyre. You describe it as one of the great desert river systems There are obviously lots of rivers in the deserts around the world because the deserts, broadly speaking, we're talking about areas that are really arid. Most people don't know this, but it covers almost just above 40% of the world's landmass. So it's an incredibly large area. But in the Lake Eyre Basin, it is those major rivers of the Diamantina, the Georgina, Cooper Creek, which has the Thompson and Baku flowing into it. And of course, on the western side, the Neils and the Todd River that come in from Alice Springs can eventually flow into the eastern side of Lake Eyre. So that makes up the major rivers in the Lake Eyre Basin. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we don't associate rivers with uh, deserts particularly. So that's really interesting just in itself. 
It is, and and they're they're an amazing part of the deserts because wherever there's water, there's life, and you have incredible life around these rivers. I'm just wondering if you could perhaps describe the country that the rivers pass through. I mean, I imagine a lot of people haven't actually been there. So what's the country like? Well, it goes through pretty amazing country. Obviously, west of the Great Dividing Range has a lot more vegetation, but as you go through sort of areas like Longreach and Winton in western Queensland, all the way to Windora. Country does change from Mitchell grass, dryland areas, through to, you know, real deserts with dunes. And by the time you get down to where the rivers eventually get to Lake Eyre, you're in the Strasleki and the Simpson desert areas with those sort of rolling dunes and swales, which are such a characteristic part of our deserts in that part of the world. And legendary. I mean, just hearing you say those words, they're kind of legendary places in Australia. They are. They're amazing and, and very beautiful. And and unlike, you know, many other parts of Australia, largely still intact from an environmental point of view and a very important part of First Nations peoples who live there and depend on those systems. In the study you've co-authored, you've pointed out that for the first time you've investigated the distribution of oil and gas production across the Lake Eyre Basin Rivers floodplains. Tell me, how did you conduct the study? I've spent a lot of time doing research, flying over large parts of this area, and in particular looking at some of the threats that are there. It became clear to me that there were more and more of these structures basically related to oil and gas, which have been there for some time, particularly in terms of oil, but increasingly more and more gas. And so I and my colleague, Amy Walburn, decided to essentially put together an analysis of where all these structures were or are and use the government databases on the distribution of those oil wells and intersect those with where the rivers and the floodplains are to understand how much of this infrastructure is there. And then, of course, wherever you've got an oil or gas well, it needs to be supplied by vehicles. To do that, these oil and gas companies build a road structure in there and levees and there are platforms for servicing these oil and gas wells. So there's all of that. And in some, there are areas where they're putting wastewater potentially. There are a range of different impacts that are occurring there. And I guess the other final thing that we did was to look at where is the future in terms of this area and the proposed number of oil and gas wells across this massive part of Australia. We did an analysis of the potentially millions of hectares that might be affected. Just looking at what's there already, what did you find about the impact on the environment? Well, the biggest impact that we could find, we were using remote sensing to do this, using Google Earth imagery to look back through time and how quickly these have been developed and put in place. You know, the major impact is changing the flooding regimes of these floodplains. So once you've got a network of of levee banks and platforms in the middle of a wetland, it means the water can't go where it would naturally go. And obviously that has an impact on the plants and animals that depend on it and the flooding patterns downstream. How many oil and gas production sites and exploration wells are currently on the floodplains? 
More than 830 of these wells currently in place across the floodplain. Looking at their impact, we were able to focus on three major hotspot areas where there were lots of structures and be able to map the road networks, the dams that have been put in place, and also the levee banks there and the platforms that the the wells are on. And we know also from work done by the federal government and CSIRO that in the Cooper Basin, which underlies the Cooper Creek system, there is potentially up to a 1,000 to 1,500 more gas wells going to be put there with their associated impacts. That gives you some idea of the magnitude of what we've currently got and what's proposed for the future. And if you've just turned on your radio, I'm speaking with Richard Kingsford about the impact of current mining projects in the Lake Eyre Basin and what's being planned. In his paper, Richard also discussed the Kungi Lakes Ramsar site in the Eyre Basin, so important for migrating birds, and Australia has responsibilities under the Ramsar Convention. I asked Richard to tell me more about that. It is managed by the states, but it is part of the the federal government's oversight of the environment in Australia. It has a responsibility because it's an international convention. And one of the key aspects of that is to ensure that there are proper environmental assessments wherever a Ramsar site might be affected. Now, there is a large area that's been identified as a Ramsar site in the Kungi Lakes region of the Lake Eyre Basin. It is actually the only Ramsar site, but there are other nationally important wetlands in the basin. It does mean, from a legal point of view, that the federal government should be oversighting what's happening in this space and assessing the potential environmental impacts. And we found very little evidence that that was actually occurring. So I guess that's a major impact, particularly as the federal government looks to reform the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is the federal legislation. Yes, and I guess this is a space where migrating birds can stop and rest. It certainly is, and that's a very important part of the picture. The Australian government has responsibility for nationally threatened species and these international migrants that come from the Northern Hemisphere to spend that winter up there in the summer in Australia. So obviously these wetlands provide a very large and extensive resource when there's flooding for a lot of these birds. And Kungi Lakes is one of the more perennial areas where lots of birds come and spend their time. You've said more than a thousand more wells are proposed for this area. What will be the impact on the Ramsar site? What would you be concerned about? Oh, look, I'd be concerned on all of those things in relation to fragmenting this amazing river system, breaking it up into little pieces so it doesn't connect. I think there are also big questions about what happens when you access the unconventional gas through fracking, where essentially water is pumped down into those deep geological areas and used to fracture the rocks down there. It's also associated with chemicals, and obviously that then comes up as wastewater. I'm certainly concerned about that wastewater being on the floodplain where floods can come through and cut through that and mix that polluted water with the sort of pristine natural waters of the system and what might be the long-term impacts. But isn't there a Lake Eyre Basin Agreement? 
Yes, so the policy area is supposed to be covered by an agreement to protect the rivers and their flow and flooding patterns signed up to by the Australian government, the Northern Territory, the South Australian Queensland governments. But it's a little bit like a lot of policy and legislative frameworks. It lacks the detail that you need to really mitigate against these sorts of developments and their impacts. And added to that, a lot of Australia's land and water management, the power base is really in the states under the constitution. So it's really the states who determine what they're going to do with mining their lands and doing what they do to rivers. And that doesn't really work very well when you have these rivers that cross state borders. To some extent, this has been a problem with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and the upstream states dictating what goes on to the downstream states. And, you know, the Lake Eyre Basin is another example of that, where we have broad environmental policies, but they're not really effective in terms of stopping this sort of damage. Richard, you've just come back from doing aerial surveys in the Lake Eyre Basin, and I have to say I was very envious of you for being there. What was it like? There are floods going down the Cooper Creek system, which is the most eastern big river, and there are also small to medium floods going down the Georgina, and we actually went across Lake Eyre, which has a little bit of water, but it's very shallow, and it's really not biologically productive in terms of habitat for water birds and and other animals like fish. But what is interesting, because that system depends on the summer monsoonal systems, it's really primed, if you like, for if we get big floods over our summer period, that we might get a lot more water going down that system and spreading across there and and really making for this amazing response from plants and animals and other organisms that really fire up when you've got such a lot of water going down through there, all the way down to Lake Eyre in itself. When I read your paper, I was quite distressed hearing about what's happening to that area, and I expect that people listening will be feeling the same. What needs to happen here? Oh, look, I I breathe a deep sigh (laughs) because part of the problem is we really need some strong policies. To a large extent, what's happening there is the responsibility of Queensland and South Australian governments and the way they regulate what happens on that land and to those waters. Increasingly, it's important for the Australian government to have oversight and protect these nationally important environments. But I don't see that we've got all the right tools now to do that. And because so few people live out there, they don't really understand the full extent of what's going on. So it's really about getting that information and urging governments to do the right thing. Yes, that's really important. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, for many of us, uh, it would be a dream to go to a place like that. But And because we haven't, uh, we're not entirely sure what we're losing. But, of course, we've seen beautiful videos about when Lake Harris and flood. So I guess uh, people listening could be getting in touch with their members of parliament. Absolutely. I think that's a really important aspect. There is actually a public process underway to review the Lake Air Basin Agreement. Your listeners could look at the website for the Lake Air Basin Agreement and also record their concerns there because that will go through to the decision makers. It's a long way from where most people live 
and might seem remote, but it is really important for us to understand what's going on out there and to voice our concerns whenever possible. Welcome back to 3CR. And that was Richard Kingsford, and it is so important to be aware of what's going on out there and to voice our concerns, as Richard said. And Richard is a river ecologist and conservation biologist, and uh, and he was talking about the extent of oil and gas extraction in the Lake Air Basin and its impact on the sensitive ecosystem there. And more than 1,500 projects, or maybe it was about, <laughs> not more. <laughs> I'm so, I feel so passionate about this. I can't believe it. And on top of the 800, over 800 that are already there. So they're planned and, uh, you know, it's important that we take action. So we'll put a link to both Richard's paper and also to the website for the Lake Air Basin if anyone wants to make a, their statement. And I think it's over to you, Claudia. Thanks, Judith. Okay, from uh, birds to whales. (laughs) It is 40 years since the International Whaling Commission placed a moratorium on commercial whaling, substantially reducing the number of whales being taken from our oceans by humans. Last month, it gave its endorsement for a global treaty to tackle another threat to whales, plastic pollution. Here to unpack the decision and tell us more about the threat plastics pose to whales is the Australian Marine Conservation Society's Plastics Campaign Manager, Shane Kukau. Welcome, Shane. Great to be with you, Claudia. What do we know about the way whales are affected by plastic in our oceans? The whales are disproportionately affected by marine debris. Um, so what happens is they'll often become entangled or lo- uh, in lost or discarded fishing gear, or they might become starved and malnourished when they eat plastics by mistake. Uh, so but as many of our whales uh, are filter feeders, so they consume vast amounts of plastic as they move through the world's ocean. Uh, so that can lead to increased incidents as well of whales stranding on beaches with stomachs full of plastic. And in fact, in Victoria, we've seen that in the past where we've had a uh, mother whale stranded on the beach um, full of 100 kilograms of plastic in her stomach uh, and unfortunately both her and her calf died. Uh, so we can see really firsthand the impacts on our, our beautiful giant whales out there in the ocean. And we know plastics are a problem for all marine creatures. Can you tell us, you talked about disproportionately affecting whales, what is the extent of the problem compared to other marine animals? So it's always quite difficult to see what's happening out in the the great open waters of the open ocean. But what we know is that because of the way that whales feed, sucking in huge amounts of water um, to filter out the the plankton, etc., that they can quite easily consume quite a lot of plastic. And so that's one of the reasons why they're they're affected more than others. Um, And part of it is the way that they move. So they're moving through um, huge... uh, They move huge distances up and down the coast of Australia, through international waters, etc., and they can interact with a lot of the floating marine debris um, and the lost and abandoned fishing nets out at sea. Um, and when a whale becomes entangled in a fishing net or even in a shark net, which does happen as they move up and down the coast of Australia, um, that prevents them from being able to get up to the surface to breathe and it prevents them from being able to feed. And, and unfortunately, they, they slowly die. And a lot of um, listeners who may be like me and, and aren't familiar with the the way in which different creatures uh, impact the ecology around the uh, marine life might um, just see the whales as beautiful marine creatures. But there is importance uh, that they play 
in the, the ocean in terms of the ecology. Can you tell us about the value of whales in our oceans? For sure. Uh, one of my favourite pieces of information is actually that uh, whale poo is essential to the ocean ecosystem. Uh, so <laughs> I did because, read that, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. So, you know, it does, it's quite nutrient-dense and that, that um, actually sort of um, seeds all of the nutrients throughout the ocean that are needed for other forms of life. Um, so just by moving through the ocean and pooing, whales are helping to keep the ecosystem going. Uh, they, they are a really critical keystone animal in our oceans um, and it would be a real um, devastation, I think, if we were to lose them. We almost lost them because of commercial whaling uh, with people going out there and killing them because whales take a very long time to breed and grow. Um, it takes a long time for their numbers to rebuild and so almost we lost them. Um, now they're just starting to, to come back, but unfortunately now they're facing more pressures than ever before, not just from plastic, but also in terms of rising ocean temperatures, abandoned um, fishing nets, etc., out in the ocean, from um, the little bit of whaling that's still occurring, etc. Our whales are under a lot of pressure at the moment. So can you tell us exactly what the International Whaling Commission decided when it met recently? So the interesting thing about the resolution uh, at the International Whaling Commission is previously it's been a commission that's focused almost exclusively on whaling as a practice, uh, but now as we sort of look at a post-whaling world, um, they're looking at those other threats that are facing uh, whales. So this is the, the, the most significant resolution they've passed around plastic pollution as the threat, and what it basically does is it commends the negotiations and it directs the Secretariat of the International Whaling Commission to work with um, and supports the process of negotiating a global treaty and plastic pollution because of the threat to whales. It also directs its scientific committees to look more into compiling the research um, and filling the research gaps around how plastic is hurting whales because there's still a lot we don't know. And what could a global treaty look like when we're talking about uh, whales and plastics? So the Global Plastics Treaty is being uh, described as a potential Paris Agreement for our um, oceans and for plastic pollution. Uh, and basically what that uh, looks like is so our UN Environment Assembly got together at the beginning of the year and commenced uh, negotiations and the scope of what they've said that can be negotiated uh, is really quite uh, amazing. So they've said that they want this agreement to cover the entire life cycle of plastic. So that's not just the plastic that's already in our oceans. But what kinds of plastics can be produced in the first place? Stopping people and companies from being able to produce things that can never be recycled. Um, and also looking at things like uh, global binding standards and rules around plastic production, around the uh, increasing the amount of recycled content and decreasing the use of virgin plastics. Um, these things are possibly on the table. Uh, but then also on top of that, uh, funding for some of those small island developing nations which have huge tides of plastic washing up on their shores and they don't have the infrastructure or the space to be able to deal with it. Uh, so it could be a very significant step forward for our, our world. Uh, the other interesting thing to know about that is that they've set themselves a very ambitious timeline to negotiate the details of that treaty over just the next two years. Often these treaties can take up to a decade to negotiate, so that shows how serious both the problem is and how serious the global nations seem to be taking it. That's fantastic. That was going to be my next question to ask you about the time frame because... I imagined it would be, you know, 10 years or something with, with, with the, the scope of what they uh, were talking about. So that's re really positive news. And I believe by that time we'll also have an Australian um, as vice president of the, of the uh, IWC. 
Yes, it's going to be a very significant time. Um, and we're, we're sitting, I think, at a tipping point in terms of global action around plastic pollution, uh, where uh, finally countries are recognising the very serious threat that it's posing to our ocean wildlife um, and to our own futures, um, and finally starting to get together to do something about it. And we're seeing the evidence here in Australia. Over the last two years, we've had state and territory after state and territory moving to ban single-use plastics uh, because of the huge quantity of plastic that's flowing into our local oceans. Uh, so it's really good to see that momentum starting to build. Yeah, I noticed that you've got a, a chart with the different uh, types of single-use plastics, of which there are many, and the progress that each state is making uh, to eliminate those. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the states are tracking there? It's really, <coughs> uh, it's become a race to the top, which is, is uh, quite good to see. So, uh, for example, we know that Western Australia has currently been leading all of the states and territories, uh, phasing out uh, the same things that most of them are doing, straws, drink steroids, cutlery, uh, polystyrene food and drink containers, but also going on to phase out things like thick plastic shopping bags, not just those lightweight ones, and also phasing out plastic cups and lids and coffee cups that contain plastic. Um, and that's really significant because these are some of the most widely littered items, most commonly found on beaches and coastal cleanup surveys. They're very easily lost into the environment. And by phasing those out, we start to actually stop the plastic that's flowing into our oceans. In Victoria, uh, next year, they're going to be bringing in their ban on single-use plastics in February, and that's going to include straws, drink stores, cutlery, polystyrene food and drink containers, plastic plates and bowls, and cotton bud sticks. Yeah, it's fantastic. I noticed on the chart um, that it seems to be the states that have got more ocean uh, marine sort of lifestyles, Queensland and WA, that seem to have uh, tackled this uh, first and uh, are leading the pack. Is that a connection that, uh, you know, you've observed or is it is it coming pressure and action coming from other places? It's it's coming all over, but definitely those those states and territories that have a very large ocean real estate know that they've got more to protect. So if you look at Western Australia, it's the largest ocean real estate in the, the country um, and also home to really uh, amazing animals like our beautiful whale sharks up in the north and our turtles. Same with Queensland. Queensland's been seeing baby turtles washing up on their beaches with stomachs full of plastic just weeks after they've hatched so they can see firsthand the, the damage that these plastics are inflicting. And unfortunately, you know, plastic doesn't know any borders. A piece of plastic that's littered in South Australia or Victoria can float all the way up the coast, you know. So it's it's really important for every state and territory to be taking action uh, as the, the actions of one state can affect the wildlife in another. And when you say these bans will take place next year, are we talking about a ban in production of these items? Ban on the sale or supply. So what that essentially means is that no retailer or business, et cetera, can supply these plastics to an individual, um, and they also can't be sold on supermarket shelves, et cetera, that sort of thing. So in essence, it you know it prevents manufacturer because there's no no uh, no one to sell it to in Australia. And in terms of recycling, does that change the whole paradigm there? If we don't have the products, these plastic products in the first place then the whole uh, confusion that we have about which parts can be recycled uh, sort of disappears? Unfortunately, not quite. So while the bans on some use plastics have uh, targeted a lot of the um, sort of takeaway plastics that are used on the go, you know, straws, cutlery, um, plates, uh, 
takeaway containers, that kind of thing. Um, they don't target plastic packaging generally. And so, unfortunately, what we're seeing is in Australia, only 16% of our plastic packaging gets recycled. Um, so the vast majority of it is going to landfill or it's being burnt or it's ending up out in our environment. So that's like the, the soft plastics that wrap every wrap pack and snack in the supermarket um, or the harder plastic containers that are used to, to um, across all kinds of products. All of that plastic packaging, unfortunately, is hard to recycle and doesn't have a lot of good places to go. I mean, take your average Pringles can, for example, um, because it's plastic bonded to paperboard and then with a, a sort of metal on the bottom and something different on the top. It's actually very difficult to recycle because it's being used, made out of so many different materials. So companies aren't really creating things with an eye to their recyclability. So is there a risk with the ban on single-use plastics that companies will move to some of these other types of more complex constructions and will end up with a, the same problem but in a different form? The, probably the biggest challenge that we've seen is companies moving to um, compostable alternatives. Um, and what is happening in Victoria, for example, is the Victorian government's actually not going to be allowing bioplastic or compostable plastic alternatives. And that's a really good step because, unfortunately, without uh, the infrastructure to ensure that every piece of compostable plastic gets to a compost facility and without regulations in Australia on the kinds of um, things that can be marketed as compostable or biodegradable. Um, we're just never going to be able to collect it all and the compost facilities are all going to reject them. So we need to make sure that um, we're moving to genuinely sustainable alternatives like bamboo or cardboard or wood, etc., that break down naturally in the environment. Fantastic. Well, it's really pleasing to, to hear that the progress um, that's being made in this area. It's such an important uh, part of what we need to do to protect our environment and our whales. Um, now, what are the best actions individuals can take at a community level while they're waiting for these bans to take a effect? And uh, how can they also get involved in uh, what you're doing and support your campaign? Sure. Uh, we can always be looking for ways to reduce single-use plastics in our own life, of course. Not that we always get a choice. I'm sure many of us have been frustrated when we go to um, a cafe and they give us our you know, food in a, a takeaway plastic bag uh, or where we're given a straw or a drink stir or a um, piece of cutlery without even asking for it. But where you do get the opportunity, you know, using a reusable water bottle, using a reusable keep cup, Wherever possible, reusables are a much better alternative than any single-use product because it reduces the amount of waste that's being generated. Uh, but it's also really important that we keep up the pressure for action. You know, we wouldn't be sitting at this tipping point of momentum if it wasn't for ocean lovers all across Australia who have been demanding action. Um, it's really the public that's led the way on this, and it's really important that we keep that up. So by contacting your um, local um, MP or your environment minister, um, asking them to increase the amount of plastics that are being banned. You know, Victoria, when its ban commences next year, is only going half as far as places like WA and South Australia. So really asking them to go further um, and to, to put out a roadmap for how they're going to tackle other things like coffee cups and plastic cups and plastic takeaway containers uh, is really important. The other thing that we can do is not use balloons. Um, so balloons are actually the biggest plastic killer of seabirds. Um, very lightweight, they blow away really easily. They take a very long time to break down in the ocean and they're um, often mistaken for jellyfish by turtles or um, by, uh, for, as food by seabirds and then they wrap around other plastics in their stomachs. So it's those kinds of choices that we can make in our daily lives to reduce the waste that do obviously make an impact too. 
And I uh, was looking at your website and you have uh, a lot of uh, very good resources and information very clearly laid out on, on, on how um, to break down the different ways that we can to, to work to uh, reduce our usage and uh, also to, to make um, our voices heard. So I'll, I'll give that website out, www.marineconservation.org.au. And uh, I'd also recommend to listeners, if they haven't already seen it, this film really changed my whole perception of um, why we need to, to care about plastics and our oceans. And it's the film Blue, which came out about five years ago. And if once you've watched that film, you can't really throw any plastic uh, away and you just, you just want to use something that's um, reusable. So I'd really encourage any listeners who haven't seen that documentary to um, take a look. Thank you very much, Shane, for your time this morning. I think he might have already gone to his next interview. So that was Shane Kukau, Plastics Campaigns Manager at the Australian Marine Conservation Society, sharing the latest news from the International Whaling Commission in relation to plastic pollution in our oceans. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Claudia. We're going to jump to a quick community service announcement and we'll be right back very shortly. To celebrate International Transgender Awareness Week, 13th to 19th of November, the Trans Pride March Melbourne is on Sunday 13th of November. Trans Pride March Melbourne highlights trans visibility like never before by uplifting voices in our community and continuously passing the mic. Attend the march Sunday 13th of November at 11.30am outside Victorian State Library, Swanston Street, CBD. And for those who can't make it along, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the march from 12 to 4pm. Your favourite Sunday Arvo queer programmers will bring you interviews, speeches and all the action live from the march. Tune into 3CR Digital, stream online at 3cr.org.au or dial into 855am for Trans Pride March Melbourne, Sunday 13th November. Welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast. I'm joined by Jacob, Claudia and Judith. Our next segment is going to be exploring the mainstream media's somewhat fraught relationship um, with LGBTQIA plus people. Now, there's been some positive stories, uh, but there's also been moments in which journalists have misrepresented or perpetuated harmful views against the community, particularly for trans and gender diverse people. ABC Queer is a branch of our public broadcaster dedicated to telling queer and trans stories. I spoke with ABC Queer content lead Mon Shafter about their podcast Innings and Outies and the importance of informed representation. And this interview originally aired on last Sunday's Queering the Air here on 3CR. Mon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. How is your Sunday afternoon going? 
It's actually lovely. I'm painting at home. I'm painting our upstairs room, so I'm actually covered in paint right now. <laughs> My gosh. I love, we love a creative pursuit on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off. Maybe you can tell us, I think I gave a very broad um, overview, but as you are the host, what is Innies and Outies and how long have you been doing this podcast for? Sure, sure. Innies and Outies is a podcast featuring uniquely Australian experiences of coming out and sometimes staying in. And we feature people from right across the spectrums of gender and sexuality with a big focus on intersectionality. And um, we've recently launched our second series. So it started last October on National Coming Out Day and the second series launched again this October, October 11th. Um, and every episode is based around the theme and we sort of look at the light and shade of coming out and how it's a very personal process and unique process for everyone. Mm, absolutely. I think it's everyone has their own individual journey. And I know you have four episodes out from season two. Very exciting. Yeah. What have been some of the highlights for you? Um, our first episode that dropped this series was about coming out as non-binary. And I really love this topic. I identify as non-binary. Um, I find that particularly on ABC Queer, which is you know, the, the content that I look after at the ABC, there's a real appetite for non-binary stories right now, not only from within the queer community, but I think the broader community is really curious about this topic as well. Um, everyone seems to have an opinion on it. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, so it was for kind better of, or worse. <laughs> for better or worse. So it's, I love this podcast because it's an opportunity to provide a platform for people to tell their own stories. And in that episode, um, I featured one story where it was a mother and their kid who identifies as non-binary. When I say kid, you know, they're in their 20s. Um, and it was sort of this Q&A between the mum and Claudia about what it means to be non-binary. And it was just this great, you know, sort of fly on the wall, um, you know, conversation that you could listen to. And that it also features a really good friend of mine from Melbourne, um, Molly Whelan, um, and they told their story about, you know, realising they were non-binary as opposed to binary trans and, and why they've sort of gone down that path. Um, another ep I really love this series is about coming out in the dating world. And in that, we're sort of looking at people's experiences who aren't necessarily read by other people as who they are. So in that ep, um one of the, the guests is a 14-year-old um, trans girl from Melbourne, Frankie Mazzoni, um, and she talks about coming out in uh, the dating sense. I mean, she's a high schooler. She's only just started dating, um, is not read as trans, is, is read as a cis woman. So she feels because of her safety, she wants to have that conversation with people early on. Um, and she spoke about how she navigates that. And, yeah, there, there, I mean, there's so many episodes and stories that I, but I love, but that, that's a little, you know, taste. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. That non-binary episode really spoke to me as well as someone who is also um, non-binary. And we've actually got a little segment that I might play just to give our audience a bit of a tease um, of what was discussed. Great. How do you think I should explain that Claudia is non-binary. 
What I think is interesting when I define my own non-binariness is I feel like a floating blob. I don't want to be a man. Like one time I got a haircut and it was really short, like a boy's haircut, and I freaked out. I screamed in the hairdresser chair because I was like, I don't want to be a boy. Like that's that's not it. That's not it. But then also, I I don't want to wear dresses. I don't want to be seen as a lady, as a, a she girl. Like no, thank you. That makes me feel uncomfortable as well. I just want to operate in a space that is neither androgynous. I always say a floating blob. Okay. So that was a, a little segment, I believe, from episode one, um, as you said. And I think um, for me, what was quite special about it is that there seems to be a very widespread understanding, at least in my circles, about transgender identities um, and gay and lesbian identities. But the concept of non-binary, I think, is still quite new to a lot of people. So I want to ask you, how literate do you think the average Australian is when it comes to non-binary identities? I feel like people are slowly getting their heads around it, but they don't necessarily realise how expansive it can be. So like non-binary being an umbrella term that sort of encompasses gender identity and gender expression you know, across that whole spectrum and it's not just, you know, picking the binary male or female and the fact that it can move around and gender fluidity is sort of encompassed by it. I don't think the general population understands the expansiveness, but mm. I think they're kind of getting their heads, or heads around, oh, those ones that say they and them, they're non-binary. Like, And obviously non-binary people can use any combination of pronouns, but I think in, in terms of a the, the general population is a basic understanding, but there's still a, a long way to go to get the full sort of nuance of it. Mm, 100% agree. I think because it, it kind of challenges everything we know, right, about gender being, you know, male or female. Um, and even in a, a binary trans identity, you're, you're transitioning from one to the other, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, mm. when you when you talk about going into something totally different, um, I think for a lot of people that's, that's very new. But um, I'm glad we have uh, such good media representation these days through ABC <laughs> Queer and, and other outlets. Um, and a lot of the other stories on the podcast talk about people's everyday lives. So I know there's one about singing um, with a changed voice when you're taking hormones, uh, practicing mm. faith and being queer. And then you also mentioned one before about dating while trans. So we'll take a quick look now at a snippet um, from episode three. Great. One of the things that he said is, you're trans, so you're never going to find love. No one's ever going to love you because you're trans. I remember thinking like, that is not true. I, I'm sure I've got Many people that love me. I've, I've had so many boyfriends, so many girlfriends, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, wait, no, I haven't. And I'm sure it wasn't because I'm trans. It's just because I just started dating. But I remember just thinking for months and months and months that I would never be loved because I'm trans. I will never be loved because I'm trans. Well, that one, that one hits deep. <laughs> um, yeah. Why do you think it's important that we we tell these stories and... Follow-up question as well. What audiences are you hoping to reach um, with innies and outies? Sure, sure. I think it's important to tell these stories and to provide a platform for people to tell their own stories so we have, you know, diverse representation of the whole spectrum of, of queerness and transness. Um, I think visibility is really important 
um, there's so much diversity within our beautiful community and sometimes if you don't sort of fit the you know, stereotypical description of what it is to be a gay a person, a lesbian person, whatever, you feel like you, you don't fit in and that you're alone. Whereas when you see that there is so much nuance and diversity within our community, you realise that you are part of this beautifully rich community. There are people like you out there and, you know, if you're having some challenges in your own life, you can hear these stories and go, ah, I'm kind of like that. That's how they got through it. Cool, I'm going to, you know borrow that tip and, and we've actually had feedback from people who've listened to you know these episodes in the in the first series and it's helped them have challenging conversations in their own lives one of the episodes um i interviewed a, a trans woman from regional new south wales and her parents hadn't embraced her her new name and her feminine identity and she told her story in this podcast and then that year at Christmas she gets a, a Christmas card from her mum and dad and they, they call her, you know, her, her feminine beautiful name for the first time ever and she sort of feels like, you know, her hearing stories initially on the podcast and telling her own story really helped her on her journey. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Um, what audiences are you hoping to reach with the podcast? Sure. So we find that I basically want these stories to be as accessible as possible. I don't want to take away detail because we are reaching a broad audience. I want them to be as nuanced and specific as possible, but I also want people who perhaps aren't part of our community but who are curious, I want them to be able to engage with it as well. And what we've found is that um, so through the podcast listening we kind of reach a younger queer audience through that but our episodes are also shared on abc radio and radio national Mm. and that's reaching this older broad audience and i love that because you know broad australia needs to hear these conversations they need to hear from these people in order to you know understand and demystify who we are and, and and what our community is all about and and I also get you know emails from people that have sort of stumbled across the program um, and one older gentleman was telling me that he's continued to listen to the podcast because he has a queer nephew who's questioning their identity and apparently the kid's parents aren't that supportive and this uncle wants to be there for you know for, for their family member so it's that's kind of you know that that really warms my heart and is really affirming when you hear stories like that. You're on 3CR Breakfast, and we're listening to an interview currently with ABC Queer content lead Mon Shafter speaking about their podcast, Innies and Outies. And Mon was reflecting on a listener whose nephew is queer and listened to the podcast uh, to learn more about how to support them. Yeah, that that's so powerful. And I guess, you know, that must be the best part of the job, right? And, and when you began your journey as a journalist, is that kind of something you thought, oh, I might get the chance to do this? Yeah. You know, before I started working, like doing ABC Queer, I was a journalist on the 7.30 program for about eight years. Mm. So that is a you know really broad Australian, older audience. And on that program, I still... I really like telling the stories of outsiders or people on the fringe of what, you know, society considers quote unquote normal. And I, and not just queer, queerness, but all sorts of diversity and people from, you know, minority groups and marginalized groups. And 
I always thought it was my role on that program to provide a platform for all sorts of people to tell their own stories and to make them as a human accessible. And I loved that I got to do that on a show like 7.30. So I suppose now that I'm making a specifically queer podcast, I still want these stories to be accessible to a broader audience so that we can all learn and that we can all be part of these conversations. Mm, absolutely. And I think often at times, um, at least from my um, perspective, a lot of people from queer and trans communities look to the mainstream media and they, they see their stories um, misrepresented or perhaps oversimplified. And we've seen... Um, a lot of mixed coverage. I'll say there's been some good, but there's also been some bad. Um, yeah, we've yeah. seen some opinion pieces uh, from some well-read publications arguing that trans people are maybe asking for too much or their rights aren't compatible with, with women's rights. I mean, what has your experience been working in the newsroom as a non-binary journalist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting just working at the ABC and being queer and being non-binary and I'm very out at work and and, and known queer, <laughs> mm. you know, in the building and I'm often consulted um, from content makers who, who are telling a particular story and have questions about language and, and, and sometimes I'm not consulted and, you know, sometimes not everything on the ABC is great and does justice to our communities. You know, ABC content makers get it wrong as well. Um, but I suppose... Um, I have been at the ABC for a while now and I do have a, a lot of freedom to be myself and to tell the stories that I'd like to make. But working at 7.30 initially, you know, that was hard. I, I wasn't the, the typical person in that news and current affairs environment. Um, I think early on I sort of questioned how I presented myself when I was doing TV stuff. Um, you know, it's like, do, do I need to look more feminine and pre present that more, you know, typical TV reporter, you know, sort of image. And mm. I think over time I got more confidence to be myself. But but then sometimes, you know, you would have a, a management shift on the program. Like because I was there for such a long time, I worked under different executive producers and managers and some make you feel more included and safe than others. Like there were times where I felt so different in an environment like that and that I wasn't as supported as I should have been or, his, or you know, previous managers had been more supportive and, and come someone new who doesn't really get me. Um, and then I'd have to have those conversations all over again. It's like, yeah, I'm not, you know, your traditional news journalist. I kind of tell stories a bit differently. I'm a bit more creative. And mm. this generally gets a really good response from our audience. Please let me keep doing this. And I had to have those sorts of conversations a few times. Um, I think, you know, the ABC in the last couple of years has made a big effort in diversity inclusion, not just in terms of LGBTQIA plus stuff, but cultural diversity, indigenous representation, people with disability, like they are walking the talk, but we're not there yet, you know, there's still a, a long way to go, but we do actually have a good managing director who genuinely believes in this stuff. He's not just a, you know, talking the bullshit kind of thing, like he, he is making changes in the organisation, which is, yeah, reassuring. Yeah, really, really promising to hear. And I guess selfishly, as a, a third-year uh, journalism student about to try to make my way into the industry, do you have any advice for young queer or or trans journalists um, who are just starting out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I my advice is to be yourself 
and to be true to yourself and to not try to fit the mould of what you're seeing on TV or what you think a journalist should be. I think society is changing slowly and there is more space and, you know, for diversity and people are seeing the value of diversity. So want people who look and sound different or unique and, um, you know, the ABC, we're, we're the public broadcaster, we're taxpayer funded, we are here for all Australians and mm. have to represent the diversity of everyone in this country. And that is in terms of the people who work for the organisation and the audiences that we're reaching. And in order to tell stories um, respectfully, accurately, you know, in a, in, a, in a complete way, we need diverse people in the organisation to do justice to those stories as well. So I say, you know, just be true to yourself. I, I worked for Andrew Denton on a show um, about, you know, 10, more than 10 years ago now called Hungry Beast. And when I started, his advice to all of us young people who were brought together on the show was to be aggressively you. And I took that advice and that worked for me on that program. And then when I got to 7.30, it was like this total culture shock because I was in this super conservative environment. But I remembered what he'd said and, you know, stuck true to my instincts and, and then it, it worked out for me. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for those uh, wise words. And I guess um, one, uh, not fun, or second last question, um, how do you think the media can better serve LGBTQIA plus communities? Mm. I think more diversity in staff across the whole Australian media landscape is essential. I definitely think we need more trans representation in the media and non-binary representation. I think within the ABC there's a lot of, um, you know, sexuality diversity. There's not a whole lot of gender diversity. I can name a few people, but we definitely need more of that because I think that's often where the media is getting it wrong these days in terms of coverage of trans and gender diverse issues. And I think um, everyone's trying to do a good job, but they're making mistakes because they don't understand these issues well enough. Mm. Um, so I really think, you know, we need more gender diversity and, and a lot more on-screen gender diversity as well. Like I'd, I'd love to see, you know, trans or non-binary person hosting the... 7pm news, hosting Q&A, yes. all those programs. Like, And I reckon, you know, we're, we're going to get there. We've got um, Ed LeBrock, who is a, a trans man who hosts on Classic uh, Classic FM, at the, Classic FM, Classic something, mm. um, at the ABC, and he is a, you know, a real pioneer within the ABC, but we, we need more of that. Be aggressively you. What a, a powerful sentiment to take <laughs> forward into the morning. <laughs> I wrote that down. <laughs> Such an important conversation, Jacob. Thank you for bringing that to our yeah. listeners on breakfast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And if you're just tuning in now, we just heard a conversation um, with the, the content lead for ABC Queer and the host of Innies and Outies, Mon Shafter, speaking on how the media can better serve the LGBTQIA plus community. And if you're interested in listening to Innies and Outies, it's available on all streaming services, or you can also tune in to some radical radio here on 3CR, Queering the Air, every Sunday um, from 3 to 4, hosted by myself um, and a collective of wonderful queers and trans people. Um, and on that note as well, next Sunday, the 13th of November, is Victoria's first ever Trans Pride March, and it's happening right here in Melbourne 12 o'clock at the State Library. So come along um, and hear from a wonderful 
uh, lineup of speakers. We'll also be live streaming uh, for four hours from 12 to 4 p.m. on Sunday, so you'll be able to tune in to 3CR and hear the whole march if you can't make it on the day. Um, and I'll also be I'll be there pretty much during the Vox Pop, so come say hi <laughs> if you see me. Yeah, that sounds so fantastic. I really look forward to going to that one. It'll be good. And we've had quite a few environmental um, conversations this morning around Wales and also about the Lake Eyre Basin and the strategic plan. So if anyone was moved by that interview with Professor Richard Kingsford to do something, you can go to haveyoursay.agriculture.gov.au forward slash Lake dash air, E-Y-R-E dash basin. And there's a survey going and it doesn't close till the first week of December. So yeah, get on to it. And just a final note for listeners before we sign off for this week. I just wanted to draw your awareness to the recent spike in COVID-19 cases that we've been seeing in Victoria and across the country. And just a reminder really that we can still wear our masks on public transport we don't have anyone on the news every night telling us what we should or have to be doing and there are no fines being handed out but just common sense tells us yeah that uh, there has been a spike recently so masks and uh, perhaps uh, going in for that third or fourth vaccination if you haven't had it Mm, masks and take care and thanks for joining us here on wednesday breakfast 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.